All right. Thank you, Matt. Hey, good morning, everybody. Don't you love hearing that deep, booming voice? He's got a, I'd love to have that guy's voice. You know what? Um, I'm convinced you would pay more attention if I had his voice. Just saying. All right. Anyway, hey, so we're in a series. Um, uh, well, actually, uh, last November, we launched a series we called All In. And, um, you know, we said that was a discipleship journey that we wanted us all to go, in, go on. And we said that related to all in, there were going to be v- three very, very important components of that journey, all of which flow out of our vision as a local church. So I want to remind you what that vision is. Uh, Jess talked a little about it a moment ago. Be a disciple-making church that brings hope and healing to our community. In other words, we don't want to just be a church that focuses on ourselves. We don't want to make this about us. Uh, Now, if we're going to be a church that brings hope and healing to people, we have to be a church that is focused on and centered on Jesus. In other words... I don't bring hope and healing with me wherever I go. You don't bring hope and healing with you wherever you go. Only Jesus does that. And so we have to bring Jesus with us. We have to depend upon Jesus as we, uh, you know, go into our community. So the first call of that journey was to be all in together on our relationships to Jesus because if Jesus isn't first, if Jesus isn't glorified, then it doesn't matter what we do, how much money we raise, how many buildings we buy, uh, we're just not smart enough on our own to meet the many needs that exist in this community. If we're going to do that, we have to do that dependent upon Jesus. Only he can do that. Now, the way that happens, and the reason I love this story so much that Matt just read for us, the way that this transformation happens is one life at a time, one name at a time, one person at a time. So today, I want us to look at this story that should remind us why it's so important to be all in together on our relationship with Jesus. I mean, this is a story that shows us some amazing things about our Savior. Uh, so we know a couple things from the setting, right? Jesus is going to a feast. He's going to Jerusalem again. He comes to a pool that's in a place called Bethsaida. We're going to talk more about what, or, or Bethesda, what that means in a moment. And we're told as well that there's a multitude of people, most of them are lame, blind, or paralyzed. In fact, we're told that there's one man who's been there for an invalid there for 38 years. So let's make um, a couple of observations. So one thing you're going to notice, especially if you're reading from the King James or the New King James, uh, so in the NIV and the ESV, there's no verse 4. Now that's not a misprint in your Bible. Um, there's no verse 4 for a very, very good reason. Uh, The answer, the the reason it's not there in the NIV and the ESV is it was not um, part of the original text. It was an insertion a little bit later. It was still helpful. It was still accurate. But the oldest and best manuscripts actually don't contain that verse. It was added later to help us make sense Uh, of this story. But here's what verse 4 says in the King James. It says that um, 
these, uh, all these uh, sick, broken people were, quote, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. See, this helps make sense, right, of this uh, man's um, kind of legitimate excuse to Jesus as to why he couldn't get in the pool and get healed. The angel would come and stir the waters, and then he would try to get in, but somebody would step in ahead of him. Now, uh, the thing I'd want to point out, though, is that how this pool worked is not essential to the story. But the fact that Jesus worked is essential to this story. And then the third observation we need to make that will become important a little bit later is that there was a multitude of people around the, uh, this pool, uh, a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed people, and as well as the folks who took care of them. So this is going to be super important when it says later in verse 13 that Jesus had withdrawn because there was a crowd in that place. And we'll talk more about why that's so important later. Then in verses 6 through 9, we begin to focus on Jesus and, you know, what kind of person is he? So here's what we're told in verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, Jesus asks him this odd question. He says, do you want to be healed? Now, don't you think that's an odd question to ask somebody who's been paralyzed for 38 years unable to walk or do anything for themselves? I think that's a very, very odd question. Why would Jesus ask that question, do you want to be healed? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the pool of Bethesda is just like a church. And people go to church for all kinds of different reasons. Sometimes people are there not necessarily to be healed. They're there for sympathy or commiseration. Uh, you know, they want to be heard, but they don't necessarily want to be healed. Sometimes people don't want to be made well because their handicap their, or their brokenness, it fuels their life. So in other words, things like addiction or anger or bitterness, those things give them the power to get through the day. Now, sure, they're miserable and in bondage, but at least they have something to live for. Sometimes people bring a victim mentality into the church. They have all these reasons why they can't change, and usually it's someone else's fault. Hey, he stepped in, somebody stepped in front of me. Hey, I'm a victim. He hurt me. Hey, she abused me. Now listen, those are painful experiences. Those are difficult things. But the grace of Jesus says you don't have to live with that label anymore. The grace of Jesus invites you to step above that and beyond that and outside of that. None of those things have to define you for one more moment. In essence, with this question, do you want to be made well, Jesus is asking this man this. He's asking, are you willing to change? Will you allow me to shape and mold you? This is proven in verse 14 when Jesus seeks this man out again at the temple. 
because here's the truth about people. Most people want things in their life to change, but they don't want to change. In other words, they want want their marriage to get better, but they're really not interested in doing whatever they would need to do to become a better husband or a better wife. They want their life to get better, but they don't want to necessarily do anything that would actually make their life better. See, many people who go to church have no intention of changing. Now, I bring this up, I say this to make a really, really important point. As we bring, as we experience the hope and healing of Jesus here, and as we bring that hope and healing to the people of our community, not everyone is going to want to be healed. And that's okay. We're okay with that. But you know what? We're going to call through the crowd until we find the people who do want to be healed. And we're going to bring the hope and healing of Jesus directly to them. I also want you to notice something else. Notice that this sick man, he doesn't directly answer Jesus' question. I mean, I'd expect him to say, Heck yeah, Jesus, I want to be made well. I've been laying here for 38 years waiting on you. But he doesn't say that. He offers what he believes is a legitimate excuse to Jesus. Let's read what he says. He says, um, well, you know, hey, every time I try to step into the water, there's nobody here to help me into the pool. So every time the water gets stirred up, you know, Uh, Somebody else gets in ahead of me. Now, while this is, in this case, a legitimate excuse, we need to, here's something we need to know about excuses. Excuses will always interfere with healing and wholeness. Excuses will always keep you from becoming the man or the woman that God wants you to be. So Jesus uh, ignores his um, excuse and, and basically in his grace and mercy just pronounces healing on this man. So Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And we're told that at once this man was healed and he indeed did take up his bed and walk. Now these verses show us exactly why it is so important that every one of us in this room be all in on Jesus all the time. It tells us three vital things about our Savior, and I want to walk through them to make sure we get it. So first we're told that Jesus knows us. We're told in this verse that Jesus looked at the man, and he knew simply by looking at him that he'd been there a long time. He knew his story. He knew how he felt. See, Uh, Jesus knew him and his situation without even having to be told. Listen, when you know Jesus, this is the kind of person that you know. You know someone who knows everything about you, who knows your thoughts, who knows your yearnings and your cravings and your desires. He knows all of that. 
He is a person who knows you perfectly. Everything there is to know about you, inside and out, all that you've ever felt, all that you've ever thought, all that you've ever done. This is why the psalmist marveled over this and said this, God, you discern my thoughts from afar. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. So listen, we follow a Savior who knows us. He doesn't have to be informed or told. Secondly, look at the compassion, just the grace and mercy of Jesus. See, Jesus chooses to go to this pool. He didn't have to. It didn't sneak up on him. He didn't stumble by. He went there purposefully. He was going to that pool in the same way that he went to Samaria, walked all the way to a distant country to find a woman at a well. He went to find this man in the same way that he went to an official who had a sick son. And what I need us to hear in this is that Jesus always moves toward need and brokenness. He doesn't retreat from need and brokenness. He is intentional about moving towards it. Uh, In other words, uh, Jesus moves toward need, not comfort. He moves toward broken-hearted sinners, not self-righteous people. So listen, here's the takeaway. As followers of Jesus, we have to be willing to move toward need and brokenness. We can't just settle for sitting comfortably in our pews for a couple of hours on a Sunday morning. Some of you are like, wait, a couple of hours? I didn't sign up for that. You know what I'm saying, right? I mean, we're wired for comfort, aren't we? And even though Jesus was just like us in every respect, fully man, he didn't allow himself to do that. He moved toward brokenness and need, and he calls us to do the same thing. Now, I also want you to notice that even though this man doesn't answer Jesus' question in the way that we'd expect, in his grace, mercy, and compassion, Jesus still heals him. He says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And I want you to notice too that this healing is not a response to anything religious or faithful or good or righteous about this man. In fact, we're going to find out later in this story it was exactly the opposite. In other words, this healing didn't come from this man's faith. It didn't come from some, uh, you know, resume he'd presented to God. In other words, it just flowed out of Jesus' mercy grace and compassion see over and over again in the gospels we are told that jesus looks at a man or looks at a woman and we're told that he's moved by compassion he's moved uh, when he just looks because he knows when he looks he sees this is why peter would say look cast your cares on him because he cares for you cast your cares on him Not only does he know you, but he cares for you. And then finally, the last thing we see about why it's so important that we all, every one of us in this room, be all in on Jesus all the time. It's because of Jesus' power, his power. 
I mean, there's nothing he can't do. Look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And And we're told that at once this man was healed. Uh, I mean, this signifies the immediacy of Jesus' power. I mean, at a word, diseased uh, muscles and bones obey. And they don't just obey. They don't obey in a week or a month or a year. They obey at once. So we see in this story that not only does Jesus know us and loves us, but he's capable of helping us. He's all-powerful. And listen, a story like this is how you get to know Jesus. This is how you build a relationship with Jesus. This is how you become a man or a woman who is all in on Jesus all the time. You meet him right here in his word. And you speak to him and you, you tell him what you think and feel about his knowledge and his compassion and his power. You ask him to shape your thinking around those three things and to change your thinking about him where it's faulty. Then you ask him to show you who he really is. Then you walk out of the room or out of your morning encounter with him and into the day that you have to live fully aware of his knowledge, his compassion, and his power in your one and only life. And then and only then, you're serving the real Jesus, not an imaginary Jesus, not the Jesus of your imagination, but the real living Jesus revealed by the absolute authority of the Word of God. Now, at this point in verse 9, John tells us something that feels kind of abrupt, but it's super important to the story. He says, now, the day that Jesus did this, it was the Sabbath. Now, listen, Jesus knows exactly what he's done. See, it was, it was forbidden to heal on the Sabbath. That was actually considered work. Uh, It was also forbidden to carry something heavy on the Sabbath. So Jesus has healed. He's done something he knows that's going to put him in opposition with these other religious teachers. In fact, we're told they begin to persecute him after this. And he commands this man to carry his bed when other religious teachers said, hey, don't carry anything like that. Don't carry anything heavy on the Sabbath. Now listen, the Sabbath was very important in Judaism. There were all kinds of rules and regulations, things you could do, things you couldn't do, to the point that it had become oppressive. This is why in another uh, another part of Scripture, Jesus says, hey, the Sabbath wasn't made for man. You know, man, or man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. Uh, Because Jesus kind of recognized this. So the Jews said to this man who'd been healed, it's the Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They said to him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And he didn't know who Jesus was. Why? Because Jesus had quickly disappeared into the crowd. Now remember, the crowd was made up mostly of people who needed healing and their caregivers, right? We know this very well from the text. And we know as well that Jesus had healed and then disappeared before this man could even find out who he was. 
So does this mean Jesus had no intention that Jesus was only concerned about the man's body and not his soul? No, it doesn't because in verse 14, Jesus seeks this man out. This man doesn't find him or run into him accidentally. Jesus seeks him out once again to do a deeper healing in his life. Here's what he says. He says, it says, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And here's what we need to know, that Jesus had no intention of walking away from this man and leaving him with nothing more than a healed body. Jesus' most important concern was his soul. His soul. And there are some takeaways uh, that we need to have from this. Notice two things. First, at the end of verse 13, the reason Jesus walked away from the man is because he wanted to avoid the crowd. We're told that Jesus withdrew because there was a crowd in that place. Um, So the point is, had Jesus stayed there, there would have been a line of people wanting physical healing, wanting their bodies healed. Notice how this is confirmed in verse 14. Jesus seeks out the man in the temple and tells him the deeper issue is is the healing of his soul. So what's the issue? Jesus is saying this, look, I healed you to make you holy. Stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. Now listen, what could be worse than 38 years in a wheelchair? What could be worse than 38 years of being paralyzed and unable to do anything for yourself? What could be worse than that? I believe that what Jesus here is referencing is judgment. In other words, what he's saying is, well, eternity in hell could be worse than that. It could get a lot worse than that. And here's the point, a couple of things. See, Jesus walks into this huge multitude of invalids, according to verse 3, and he heals one man, just one. And he has to tiptoe around all those other people that are there to be healed. And then he later comes back and seeks out this one man for healing. He leaves hundreds of invalids unhealed. Then he finds this man in a least conspicuous place and puts all the focus on his soul. The point is this. Listen, we believe in miracles. We believe that Jesus heals. We believe that Jesus can heal anybody's body. But your soul is more important to God than your body. And it should be more important to you. These bodies that we spend so much time primping and caring for and maintaining and shaping and cleaning, these bodies that we spend so much effort on, they're not designed to last forever. They're not. But your soul is that part of you, that piece of you that is designed to last forever forever 
So Jesus is saying this to this man, my aim in the healing of your body is the healing of your soul. I have given you a gift. It's free. It came first before I asked you to do anything. You didn't earn it. You weren't good enough for it. I chose you freely and I healed you. So now I want you to live out of this healing power. Let this gift of healing, this free gift of grace in your life be a means to the saving of your soul. So Jesus warns him, right, that if he turns away, if he mocks this gift, if he makes an idol out of his health or embraces sin out of a way of life because of his newfound freedom, he is going to perish. This is why I take that final judgment to be the worst thing that will happen because, frankly, there aren't many natural things that are much worse than being paralyzed all your life. So... The point, of the, the point is this, healing comes to, listen, every Christian, every follower of Jesus eventually gets healed, but here's the question, how does that happen? And it happens in two ways. One, sometimes Jesus heals us and saves us from death. That's one way it happens. The second way it happens is that Jesus heals us through death through death. See, because everybody dies. Everybody's body will expire at some point. Your body, my body, they're not meant to last forever. In fact, Paul says this in Romans 8 very clearly. He says that we live in a world that groans because of the fall and that we have bodies that groan because of the fall. In other words, our bodies aren't always going to work or do or last the way that we would like them to. They groan. And sometimes in his grace and mercy, Jesus chooses to heal those bodies from death. But most often, Jesus chooses to heal those bodies through death. That's when we get our resurrected body, our glorified body, a body that will never rot or decay. See, not everybody got healed in this story, and not everybody gets healed in real life except through death. That's the ultimate healing. That's when our best, brightest healing actually occurs. So, really important to get that. Okay, another takeaway is this. Listen, your body is far less important than your soul. What you do, how you tend to your soul is far more important than how you tend to your body because how you tend to your soul is the only thing about you that ripples away into eternity. This is why this all-in ask is so important because it's all about the soul. Your soul, my soul, our souls, the souls of our community. Listen, this all an ask is not an ask for Shelbyville Community Church. It's an ask for the city that most of us live in and are going to raise our children in. This is an ask for someone else. We don't want to be a church that's totally fixated on itself. We'd rather be guilty of being fixated on our community. So, 
I want to ask you three questions as it relates to offering up the very, very best of your time, talents, and treasures to all in. Here's the three questions I want us to focus on that come right out of the story today. Number one, what's your handicap? What is broken in you? What in you needs to change? There are some people in this room, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, right? And you're consumed by greed. You don't know it. You don't recognize it because you can always point to somebody else that you think you're being more frugal than them. And God's calling you to generosity. Are you willing to change? Is, there's others of you here in the room, and you're carrying around things like bitter, bitterness and anger and unforgiveness. It fuels your life, and God's asking you to change that. Maybe you've just, in the last 18 months or so, maybe you've just gotten more comfortable with comfort, and that's kind of become your driving ambition. Remember, we said that Jesus never moved toward comfort. He always moved toward need and brokenness, which is the call of our all-in journey, right? So what's your handicap? Where's your brokenness? That's the first question. And here's the second question. It's the same question that, this, that Jesus asked this man. Do you want to get well? Are you willing to change in order to be healed? Maybe, maybe you've just gotten comfortable with your own negativity. Maybe you're used to being spiritually apathetic. Maybe so much so that what once broke your heart because it broke God's heart no longer even phases you. Maybe you're so comfortable with your sin these days that you can't imagine your life without it. What needs to change? What, what are you, what are, are you willing to change. And then thirdly, this is so important. In this story, Jesus told this man to do something in order to experience his healing. He said, get up. So here's the question. What is God telling you to do? What is God asking of you? How can you get up so that not only you can experience God's healing and wholeness, but you can begin to carry that message to a community that needs that healing and that wholeness. See, sometimes the miracle only comes after we obey, after we do the thing that Jesus has asked us to do. That's what happened in this story. Jesus commanded him, he got up. That's when he experienced his healing, in the, in the moment of obedience to his Savior. So let me ask it even differently. What is Jesus asking you to do with your time, your talents, and your treasures as it relates to all in? What is he asking of you? Is he asking you to move out of your comfort zone and into uh, neediness and brokenness? It's what he always does. See, our healing in this church and the healing of our community hinges on what it is that Jesus is asking us to do. Will you step into that? So here's what I want to do. 
I just want to kind of review. It's so it's so important to me. This is one of the things we set, one of the goals we said last year about All In was we wanted 100% participation. In other, words, in other words, we wanted everybody in our church to grow in, in, in generosity with our time, talents, and our treasures. And we said it was vital that every one of us not do everything, but do something. And here's why. Because the pull of our lives is always, the pull of our culture is always toward comfort. It always is. And uh, we have to look for ways to step out of that and move toward need and toward, you know, brokenness. So uh, we said uh, there were three important things associated with all in, right? The first one was, look, it's so vital that we be all in in our relationship to Jesus. And we've spent uh, most of the morning talking about why that's so important. But number two, we said the second leg was we said, look, we want to we raise the level of intentionality about the way we come alongside family and other families. In other words, we want to do family ministry better. We want to execute on that at a higher level than we ever have. We want to be more intentional than ever about coming alongside families because families all around us are falling apart. And we can't just sit on the sideline and hope that that gets better. We have to wade into that need and into that brokenness. And so we said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to bring in an additional student pastor to come alongside teenagers. Because wouldn't you agree as a parent that we need every champion for Jesus that we can get in the lives of our children? And so not only that, we brought him here and we built an extra off, we built two extra offices side by side so that our uh, youth pastor and our children's pastor would have no choice but to collaborate. And you probably saw this and I mean you can tell when they're on stage, they have an affection for one another, they have a respect for one another. That didn't develop by accident, it developed because they're in proximity to one another and that was intentional. And another piece of this, so important, we said, look, we believe God's calling us to start a preschool. Why? Well, because mom and dads who both have to work need a safe place, not just a safe place they can bring their kids, but a place they can bring their children where we point them to Jesus day in and day out. And so I just want to uh, walk you through just the first year of, uh, of our preschool. So we currently have 39 students enrolled and attending our preschool. We have 18 children on a wait list for our preschool. We have an additional six babies that are due to be born in 2022 on our wait list for 2022. We have, we, we have 10 full-time employees at the preschool. We have two part-time employees and one substitute. They're hiring assistant teachers currently. They average four tours a week. A tour is when a parent says, I'm interested in putting my child in your preschool. And so they're giving four of those every single week. They serve families from Shelbyville, from Rushville, from Greenwood, from Indianapolis, from Greensburg, and from Franklin. That's the reach. 
that our preschool is having. Uh, they host a bi-weekly discipleship group for all the staff. They have two employees who started working at the preschool, and those two employees now have brand new relationships with Jesus because of what they're seeing and experiencing and doing at the preschool. This is just so cool. You know, it says they have a group of seven, two to three-year-olds who now pray uh, on their, in their, on their own. Uh, they uh, talk to Jesus in prayer and thank him for all the things that are important in their little worlds on a daily basis. Furthermore, there's a daily discipleship culture, one-on-one -on -one mentoring culture that we're also uh, building there at the preschool. This is just incredible to me. The strides in just a year that we've made in family ministry here are absolutely astounding. And it's so important that every one of us be able to be part of that, that every one of us be invested in that. So over the next two weeks, we're going to continue to talk about our calling as it related to all in a year ago. We're going to talk about our calling to our community. We didn't even get into that today. We'll be talking about that uh, for the next couple of weeks. So uh, we're just so encouraged and excited about what our Jesus is doing as we're saying, look, we're going to be all in with the very best of our time, talents, and our treasures. So I'm going to invite our team up. And we're going to just respond to our Jesus together. Now, um, you know, the, the Word says that God demonstrated His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when we take communion together as a church, that's our opportunity to set aside a few moments to remember the love of Jesus, His demonstration of that, to bask in his faithfulness, the faithfulness of a God that would go to the cross, and then to remember the sacrifice that he paid for my sin, for your sin. So I want to remind you that as you uh, walk down these aisles, and then if you want to go do co communion as a family in your seat, you're going to walk back down the sides, or you can come to the stage for the purposes of communion. We're going to call this an altar. You can come and kneel together as a family on that. Um, but we want to remind you that as you eat the bread, you're remembering that Jesus offered his body for you. And as you drink from the cup, you're remembering that he shed his blood for you, for your sin. So this is so important that we be dialed in to him. So let me pray that he would be magnified and glorified in this time together. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. I did the very best I could. Heavenly Father, by your spirit, would you move us? Would you mold us? Would you make us men and women who are willing to change? Men and women who not only want to be healed, but men and women who are willing to speak the message of that hope and healing to their community. Don't let us be hoarders of that, God. Don't let us be men and women that would hoard hope and hoard healing. So God, we are grateful for an opportunity to remember and to celebrate your death, your burial and your resurrection for us. Thank you, we say in Jesus' name. And so come, 
and receive the altar is opened.